0: volume two chapter eight of the rebel rose by justin mccarthy and rosa campbell praed this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eight lady saxon's dinner party lord and lady saxon were in their drawing-room receiving their guests lady saxon full of animation and talk looked more than usually juno-like and magnificent in her rich draperies and her wonderful parure of uncut sapphires and diamonds Who could have believed even on her own confession that she had once walked barefooted behind a caravan lord saxon on the other hand was duller and heavier than his wont he had a stupid preoccupied air and when he spoke he seemed hardly to lift his eyes from the ground lord saxon's father the duke of athelstane had arrived he was a hale handsome erect old man who people said looked but for his white hair younger, straighter, and of keener vitality than his son. There had also come the Duke of Nornside, old, young, dandified, unmarried to the eternal disgrace of chaperones, who had succeeded to his dukedom in his minority, and who prided himself upon having seen a good deal more of the world than most people, all other dukes included. His mother, the Duchess of Nornside, an archbishop, and several people belonging entirely to the world of fashion and politics. Presently, Mr. Bellarmin was announced. Despite all his recent troubles of spirit, he seemed to bring with him that which was his peculiar charm, a certain breath of youth and sweetness and enjoyment of life, not altogether congenial with that somewhat luxurious and languorous atmosphere. Anything in your house today, Mr. Bellarmin? the Duke of Nornside asked. ''No, nothing to speak of. A local Sunday closing bill. It was talked out. By the way, you weren't there, Lord Saxon.'' ''No,'' returned Lord Saxon, monosyllabically, and Lady Saxon darted a glance at her husband. For the first time since the morning, it occurred to her that he had seen Sir Oscar Scarfeld that day. The Duke of Nornside began to talk politics at once. It was not that he took great interest in the subject, but he had a way of talking familiarly about anything that came up, whether he knew much about it or not. I dare say you fellows are breaking your hearts to get back into office, eh, Saxon? Eh, Mr. Bellerman? Are you and your Tory Democrats, your merry men, isn't that what Tommy Trussell calls them, going to help these liberal fellows to get back again? Bellerman smiled and made a jesting rejoinder. Lord Saxon's heavy brows met in a slight frown. The Duke of Nornside never allowed himself to be disturbed by the consciousness of having made a malapro remark and added a few more in the same strain. The system of government by party is really deplorable, said the archbishop, shaking his head despondingly. But what to put in its place? That's the point, cheerfully observed the elder Duke. We don't want to get into office broke in lord saxon brusquely fact of it is what the country wants now is quiet we have been putting in a lot of change lately and i am sure people want to be let alone now for a little so do i yes but people say that lucifer is getting restless he wants to stir up the constitution don't he to make a sensation said the duke of nornside I DON'T BELIEVE A WORD OF WHAT PEOPLE OR THE MEN ON THE PAPERS SAY. IT'S THEY WHO WANT TO STIR UP THINGS FOR A SENSATION, SAID LORD SAXON DECISIVELY. CHAMPION'S ALL RIGHT. YOU ARE A GREAT BELIEVER IN CHAMPION, LORD SAXON, THE ARCHBISHOP SAID WITH ANOTHER SHAKE OF HIS HEAD. WELL, NATURALLY, I AM A GREAT BELIEVER IN CHAMPION. HE GETS HOLD OF THE PEOPLE SOMEHOW, DON'T YOU KNOW? ONE CAN'T TELL HOW HE DOES IT. WONDERFUL HEAD. Wonderful voice, the archbishop conceded. Wonderful tongue, the Duke of Nornside put in. Yes, he has a wonderful tongue, Lord Saxon replied simply, but it is not all tongue, as some of you fellows try to make out. You say that you believe it, but I don't fancy you really do. Champion is a great man, and of course he is a great friend of mine." "'But you don't want to go in for all sorts of revolutionary schemes, "'abolishing the House of Lords and all that?' "'Of course I don't, but no one does. "'Don't you believe a word of it?' "'Still, by Jove!' the Duke exclaimed. "'You know everybody is saying things, and everybody can't be wrong.' "'Everybody? Who is everybody? "'The fellows on the evening papers, or Tommy Tressel? "'No.' Tommy Tressel told me it was bosh and that there was nothing going on, but I always believed all the more that there was something. I know Tommy was only trying to put me off the scent. But you don't really imagine, Saxon said very gravely and supporting his chin with one hand while he looked fixedly at the young Duke, and his face wore an expression not altogether unlike a scowl. You really don't imagine that Champion would, in any case, make a confidant of tommy Tressel. come you can't believe that don't know what i might not believe of champion lord saxon's face changed its frown or scowl into a rugged smile i verily believe he said some of you fellows think champion is the devil and just at that moment the name of sir victor champion was announced sir victor paused for half a second on the threshold and flashed his deep brown eyes round the room and over the company his eyes had the peculiarity of seeming to rest on every one in a company at the same moment and champion could always individualize with a glance every one of such a group lady saxon went forward to meet him there was a radiancy about her as she held out her hand she felt sure that things were going well with him and she had a sort of pride of ownership in him and his plans just then she thought there was something significant in the very pressure of his hand he began to talk at once ostensibly to the duchess of nornside really to the company generally about some new play which he had seen and admired and he even quoted some lines from it giving them out with far finer dramatic effect than can always be commanded by actors even of the highest class while he was still declaiming mary beaton was announced perhaps No other comer could have drawn attention away just then from Champion's declamation, but the curiosity about Miss Beaton was intense and overpowering, and Champion stopped in the middle of a sentence. Even the Archbishop was not so devoted or so bigoted in his devotion to the act of settlement as not to be curious to see something of the young lady who was given out as a Stuart princess and was alleged to have at least a moral right to the crown of England bellarmin recaught in the toils of lady saxon with whom he had been exchanging a few low-toned words half bantering half serious about what she called the stonehenge negotiations turned to at mary's entrance though it was in reality only a day or two since he had parted from her there seemed a lapse of years between then and now and he had a fantastic sense of a gulf fixed between them he had returned to London with the determination to put away all hope of winning her, to deck himself once more in Lady Saxon's gilded chains, and to deaden the tender memories of Stonehenge Park by plunging into the whirl of social and political excitement. But everything seemed to stand still for him as she approached, and the lights and the forms and the faces of the people round him, and even Lady Saxon herself, in all her luxuriant beauty, paled and dimmed, and became unreal as the phantoms of the Walpurgis knight might have seemed to faust when he beheld the vision of margaret how fair and sweet and noble she looked his white queen as she paused with a certain stately expectation just within the threshold of the door and seemed to wait for her host to lead her forward mary stuart beaton might in truth have been the blanche reign for true to her traditions she had arranged her costume of stiff white brocade with its pointed bodice and straight folds and a curious little coif of rose diamonds upon her chestnut hair so as to forcibly suggest her illustrious ancestress of unhappy memory while general falcon with a foreign star and order on his breast and lady struthers in ruby velvet and venetian point lace seemed by no means unfitting attendants to a young lady of royal descent lord and lady saxon advanced to welcome her the latter with considerable effusiveness and the duke of athelstane the archbishop and the duke of nornside were presented lady saxon did not approve of what she called the table d'hote system of dining she had arranged this dinner after a plan of her own she broke up the dining-room into several small tables each accommodating six persons she carefully arranged who was to dine with whom and thus made thoughtful provision for each party to allow of political combinations and political confidences with a leaven of beauty and wit and fashion to give vivacity to the lump there were three tables set out this evening lord saxon presided at one lady saxon at another and the duke of athelstane at the third table if you did not sit with lord saxon then perhaps you sat with lady saxon and you could not grumble at that and if not with lady saxon then be pleased to remember that you sat with the grandest old whig peer in england the living head of the house of which lord saxon was only the heir apparent there thus each guest might reason to himself at lord saxon's table sat mary beaton sir victor champion had lady saxon displayed her usual generalship in this respect but she had so arranged that she could watch him from where she sat and she had placed the two as far apart as is possible at a round table the duke of nornside lady mavis redhouse who was tall and dark and had a fixed dreamy smile and was in fact or like to be thought the primrose ligageria of the ultratory party and lady eastgrave a beauty in her meridian who wore a marvellous paris costume of black and yellow and whom lady saxon had placed there with an artistic sense of variety as presenting an exact contrast to the modern mary stuart lady eastgrave had yellow hair not bright gold like lady saxon's but a beautiful crepe arrangement fresh from bond street which only the eye of a hairdresser or a woman could detect as postiche yet which seemed worn more as a concession to fashion than with a view to artifice She had black eyebrows and clear dark eyes, and the thin, high-featured face which one associates with a certain type of the English aristocracy, the type which holds its head erect and looks vacuous and bored as it tools along the lady's mile, which clips its cheese with high-bred scorn and languidly vituperates radical abuses, and is never anything but wig-tory or tory-wig. Lady Eastgrave's color was a little fixed, and her diamonds were magnificent she seemed at once ingenuous and blase and turned directly to miss beaton and made a remark on some commonplace subject which however conveyed with fine directness i know who you are and i want you to know that i know mary beaton seated between her heavy taciturn host and the young duke of nornside had an opportunity for making a mental note upon the lack of brilliancy displayed by the british peer lord saxon said very little and there were long pauses between his sentences he asked some questions about the little schwabenstadt court his notions about the government of Schwalbenstadt appeared dim and he was constantly recurring to Frankfurt, a city which seemed to have made a more abiding impression upon him than any other he had ever visited this was natural perhaps but mary did not know that it was there he had married madame Langenwald, and so was at a loss to understand why german life should be regarded solely from the standpoint of Frankfurt on the main then lord saxon said that he thought english people were worse educated in the matter of geography than any other people on the face of the globe and he told mary that he was always busy that he didn't find being out of office made much difference in the amount of work that he got through and that if a fellow did his duty conscientiously in the house of commons and got up his facts there was no time for anything else the only result of being in office was that you had to trust to other people to get up your facts for you but he always liked to get up his own facts if he could the duke on the other side kept up a sort of rippling monologue He was very good-looking the aroma of rank and fashion which seemed to exhale from him would have delighted the lady novelists who make their heroes talk french and who revel in le high life the duke did not talk french or even very grammatical english he too clipped his g's and he drawled a little and put in don't you know at the end of every sentence his eyes had a funny twinkle he looked exquisitely clean and well got up his hair was shorn very close and parted in the middle and he seemed to feel that his station involved certain duties one of which was that of being affable to everybody the duke asked too about schwabenstadt he was very communicative about his opinions and his fancies he was very fond of traveling he always had traveled a great deal in fact he would like to be at it now going round the world on a bicycle don't you know and that sort of thing But i am tied by the leg must stop in england fact is i'm a conscientious fellow in these times i think a fellow ought to stay at home it's his duty don't you know and a word to his people now and then and seeing to his farms and making friends out in the hunting field and that sort of thing why it might help to stop a revolution don't you see and everyone says there is a revolution coming The Duke paused and looked at Mary, not certain as to how far he was treading on personal grounds. "'I hope you are not going to start a revolution, Miss Beaton. It would lead to no end of bothers, don't you know? And then there's the act of settlement. You can't get over that.' "'I don't want to start any sort of revolution,' replied Mary, though I think you need one, Duke, to put crooked things straight.' oh that's all champion's doing murmured the duke it's he who upsets things he has got a bee in his bonnet he is too clever saxon will find it out they say he wants to do away with us and we couldn't stand that don't you know you should write a book miss beaton if you want to put things straight the fellows wanted me to write a book though perhaps you wouldn't believe it about the turkish war i was out there and i talked to no end of distinguished people I could throw no end of light on things if i could only remember what they said but i can't i didn't even put down headings you should always put down headings of the conversation when you talk to distinguished people the fellows said that if i'd given them the facts they'd work them up and i wish i had for bellers bellers you know bellers of the guards you must have heard that he's the most stunning liar really the most awful liar He has written a book all about the same things and the same people and there isn't a word of it true mary wished that she had had bellarmin next her instead of the duke of nornside and lady saxon in arranging her guest places had the amiable intention of provoking ralph's jealousy by the spectacle of mary beaton engrossed with the duke so she had put him at her own table in full view of the fair stuart With the duchess of nornside the wife of a foreign ambassador the archbishop and general falcon at the duke of athelstein's table sat lady struthers the ambassador an ex-lady-in-waiting a brilliant american beauty and a handsome guardsman but mary beaton's eyes and her attention had wandered across the table she was listening to sir victor champion's silvery voice as he assured lady eastgrave that french dramatic art is too subtle to be popular in england and deplored british realism and the terrible system of making points and playing to the gallery he described rachel and her exhibition of tragic passion in the famous recitation of adrienne a few lines of which he repeated with something of the same magnetic charm as that of which he had been telling and so on to bernhardt she is a make-rock. Put in Lord Saxon, who had joined in the theatrical discussion. I incline to the Grand Turk's opinion. I like plenitude and bountifulness in a woman. Oh, she is a false micro," said Lady Eastgrave. Her bones are very small. The Duke, meanwhile, had got on to psychology. I believe in intuition, don't you know? I buy my pictures and my bric-a-brac by intuition, and I choose my friends by intuition. I get on ever so much better than the fellows who reason. People who reason always go wrong. There's Champion, don't you know? And the Duke lowered his voice. He reasons. He's a, what do you call it? Makes black seem white. Sophist. Rhetorician. I never went in for rhetoric. Couldn't do it, don't you know? When I'm at the dilettante club and fellows begin about philosophy and Egyptian antiquities and all that sort of thing, I shut up. But I don't make mistakes. Champion does. You should follow out his policy and his mistakes, and you'll find they all come from reason. I don't think he makes mistakes, Mary said, in a tone of grave reproof. I don't understand anything about English policy, she added, but he seems to me to know all, about everything. Uncommonly interesting man, assented the Duke. If Bellers was here, he'd have all that down for his memoirs, it'll be valuable stuff fifty years hence though it is only about actresses that's what these literary fellows think of why a lot of headings of conversation of eminent men don't you know are as good as a life insurance policy it might be the eastern question you know and that would be history paid for accordingly mary laughed i wish he would say something about political questions she said this talk about books and pictures and the drama is charming but he seems thrown away on such things he is a maker of history and i always want to hear him tell of his own deeds tell you what whispered the duke if you want him to talk politics miss beaton i'll try if i can't draw him out oh no please yes you'll see then be very careful or he will see what you would have and refuse to be drawn out oh i'll manage him all right so by the way of managing him all right the duke blurted out i say sir victor what are you going to do with us whom do you mean by us duke sir victor asked with a determined smile which had something ominous in it us well of course i mean our unfortunate house of lords everyone says you are preparing to make some grand attack on us papers all say so don't you know i don't read the papers very much champion said oh well they say it every day they say tommy tressel and you are up to something fancy lord saxon interposed sir victor champion and tommy tressel being associates everyone says they are though all the same the persevering duke went on mr tressel champion said gravely is a very capable man and so far as i can judge a very sincere and earnest man a man may be witty and may be even cynical in manner and yet be a sincere politician, Duke. I didn't say a word against Tommy Tressel, Sir Victor. I like Tressel. I like his dinners and I like his stories, uncommonly spicy stories, Tressel tells. And I like Mrs. Tressel and her stories. She is as good as a play, Mrs. Tressel. Uncommonly good natured, too, don't you know. I think Tressel has some very sound opinions. Had a long talk with him about the bonapartes the other night, and I quite agree with him that they're no good, ought to be done away with, don't you know? It wasn't I, it was Saxon who repudiated Tressel. I didn't think he was the sort of man to be in close association with Champion. Saxon said, He was gazing steadfastly all the time at Champion. Champion said nothing then you won't divulge your projects in advance sir victor not even for the benefit of miss beaton pray don't bring me into so indiscreet a proposal duke mary hastened to interpose there is nothing miss beaton could ask me that i could refuse to tell her champion said with a bend of the head and a gracious smile directed at mary now then ask him murmured the duke thank you ever so much sir victor mary replied but i have nothing to ask except that you won't think i was foolish enough to ask you anything champion bowed again in acknowledgment do you know he said addressing the company generally that i have lately come across a most interesting relic in a rather curious way it is a bundle of proofs of walter scott's peveril of the peak with scott's own corrections and additions and charming little annotations for ballantyne's instruction and he went on to dilate on the interesting nature of this treasure-trove. "'He won't be drawn,' the duke whispered. "'Hash, pray,' Mary said, "'you didn't go very well about it, duke.' "'Extraordinary that such things should get into the papers,' Saxon suddenly said, as if he had not heard a word about the proof-sheets of Peveril of the Peak. "'But if they're not true, why don't somebody contradict them?' the duke asked, still trying to manage his little game." Oh well, I don't believe in writing to the papers to contradict things said Saxon quickly if a man began at that sort of work he would never get done with it but there must be something in it all the duke urged lord saxon looked again at sir victor but sir victor either had not heard or would not hear what they were saying he had now gone off on the question of reputed plagiarism among living authors lord saxon's heavy features wore a look of something like pain The idea was forcing itself into his mind that his old friend and colleague was keeping something a secret from him for some reason, and that, for some reason, too, the secret was partly made known to his wife. But it was quite clear to him that the present moment was not the time for asking any questions, and that in no case could the Duke of Nornside be considered an appropriate questioner so Lord Saxon tried to appear greatly interested in the subject of reputed plagiarism. End of Volume 2 Chapter 8